I've been thinking about recording a podcast where I talk about my experience of India and how I feel about India, I guess. I've been thinking about that for a while, so um, finally got around to it. Um, India is one of those places uh, that I have a definite love-hate relationship with. Um, <laughs> I guess the, the love part is that it is an amazing country. Uh, very, very beautiful. It has the, the, um, an amazing diversity of landscapes, and I've not seen very much of it at all. And it's a place I'd love to go back to. And once you're there, in addition to the landscapes, the wildlife, there's um, a very ancient um, culture there. The, the human history part of it, if you like, is very old and um, certainly predates European civilization. So there's an awful lot to see on that side as well. I guess more of the negative stuff. There is a very obvious dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots, although having said that, uh, that's absolutely by no means um, restricted to India. You can see it anywhere. I mean, go to the United States, for example, and it is is very blatant there as well, the, the difference between the people who have money and those who, who struggle. So India is certainly not unique with that, but it has become ingrained or was ingrained at least, with the old caste system. And if you don't know what that is, then I recommend you yeah, you have a look at it. Uh, just Google it if you're planning on going to India. Um, so a very interesting place to visit from that perspective. Uh, the hate part of the relationship is the um, bureaucracy and just getting through airports and things like that. So um, I'm not the most patient of people, particularly after a long-haul flight. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I, I have had, I mean, not, not big big problems, but just irritations just getting through it all. So uh, not my favourite um, place for that kind of thing. Um, so um, if you are going, um, I'm assuming because you're listening to this podcast that your primary interest is wildlife. And I have recorded uh, a podcast some time ago now about Kana, which is the national park. It used to be the, the Kana Tiger Reserve. Uh, but it's the park I went to to photograph tigers, and I spent ten days there. So I will be I will be talking a little bit about that in this podcast. But there's more details in the other podcast because that podcast is specifically about the uh, the tigers of Kana. Um, but the other thing to think about is that if you are going to India, and I'm assuming that for most people, maybe all people listening to uh, this podcast, it's a little bit of a hike. Uh, from where you live to get to India. Uh, so if you're going to go, I, I really recommend that you allow enough time in wherever you're going to photograph wildlife. And um, my recommendation is to allow about 10 days, um, ideally in one location. Some people hop between parks and hope for the best on seeing, um, usually people want to see tigers but I do know of people who've done that and not seen anything. Um, alternative, you might get lucky and you might have lots of sightings. When I was in Kana, that was 10 days. And I think we saw tigers roughly um, uh, probably 30% of the time. So we were in the reserve twice a day except for the Wednesday. <laughs> so Wednesday afternoon, the park is closed to um, just give the animals a rest, uh, give everybody a rest, basically. So... I think your best chance of seeing tigers, because I'm guessing that's primarily what you're going to see, uh, the best to have the best chance of seeing them, just allow yourself 
um, plenty of time and hopefully 10 days is enough. I mean, obviously there are practical limitations in, in terms of how much time you've got available, maybe how much money uh, you're able to um, afford to spend on a trip like this. So give you give yourself um, a reasonable shot in terms of time of, of uh, having a few tiger encounters. But then uh, I would definitely recommend looking at some other places around India and doing a bit of sightseeing, doing a bit of um, tourism and just visiting these other sites because there are, as I've said, there are some absolutely stunning places to go to and um, it really depends on what floats your boat in terms of uh, where you want to spend your time and money. But going that far um, is definitely um, worth all of the effort. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what to expect when you go. Uh, Bear in mind, this is all pre-COVID. So the last time I was there was early in 2018. And hopefully something's gotten got a little bit better. So one one thing that was good was I was able to get an e-visa. So uh, what I mean by that, it's simply a visa that you apply for online and you then get uh, an email back uh, with a printout, which is your authorization. And what you do when you get to the country you're going to, so obviously India in this instance, you take that piece of paper with you, with your passport, and you give that to the, the people at immigration and they then issue your visa. So uh, the benefit is you don't have to send your passport away. And I, I've never liked sending my passport anywhere because there's always that danger it's, it's going to get lost in the post and um, then that gives you a whole load of other problems. So the my experience of using the, uh, the e-visa was pretty good and I was luckily enough uh, luckily enough, I was one of the first people to get off my flight to Mumbai, and I was the first person, in fact, to get to the e-visa booth, the, the immigration booth, where we had to do that. Having said all of that, I had other friends coming from Australia uh, that I was, we were meeting there rather than travelling together, and their experience was a bit more irritating. It took a bit longer. So I think the bottom line with all of this on the travel side is just to be prepared for things to take a lot more time than you're used to and just be patient with it. Now, another thing that I will mention, it's something that I've recommended on other podcasts where I've spoken about travel and also on webinars. It's kind of standard advice that I give to people now, having been caught out myself. If you're going, certainly if you're going to Kana, you'll have to go in through one of the main gateways, which will tend to be either Mumbai or Delhi for the international hubs. You're likely to fly into one of those two uh, cities and then obviously the big airports. And then you'll do an internal flight. So I had to fly down to Nagpur from Mumbai. Um, That was fine on the way out. But on the way back, going back to Sydney, I was with Air India on the flight from Nagpur to Mumbai. And our flight got delayed by, I think it was three hours. Now, I don't know what the problem was. Everybody else seemed to be flying normally. However, by the time I got to uh, Mumbai, uh, we were really close to the, the cutoff for getting to the flight. And in fact, we, um, all, all, even though there was a lot of running and what have you, and we'd also told Air India, because uh, I was with um, a colleague, we'd told the Air India people at Nagpur that we had this connecting flight and when it was leaving. So we were uh, beginning to get under a little bit of pressure to make it on time. And despite that, somebody did sort of meet us, um, although we had to find them. 
at the uh, the baggage claim from the internal flight. Getting by, by the time we got to uh, the international, they had closed the flight in terms of taking on baggage. So that then caused various problems. But it wasn't an Air India flight; it was a different airline. So uh, part of the issue there was that they'll tend to blame one another. And you're kind of left there at three in the morning in um, the airport at Mumbai, wondering when you're likely to get home and uh, having to sort it out. So this is why I say if you just use the one airline, well, they're responsible from, you know, your point of departure, your first point of departure right the way through to uh, arrival at home. So I would definitely recommend that. Okay, so uh, obviously that's not... um, limited to India you can that can happen anywhere so but it is a a piece of advice I like to recommend so what else to think about in India well um, first of all if you've not traveled anywhere like that before it's likely to be uh, pretty full-on when you get there Um, Indians certainly in cities uh, my experience is pretty full on. Uh, the traffic uh, always let Indians drive. <laughs> uh, I think uh, most of us would uh, not enjoy it too much, be quite stressful, but it's a bit chaotic. And um, uh, my own observation is that the give way rule is, is simply that if it's bigger than you, you give way to it. If it's smaller, you ignore it. And that can be quite exciting. So be prepared uh, for some interesting driving and traffic experiences if you're not used to that kind of thing uh there's lots of color lots of smells all that kind of thing so if you've not really traveled much at all and if you're used to um the uk or the us or places like that you the chances are that you're going to find um india quite a, a different place to be um having said all of that once you get out into the country and again this is just from my own experience so others might have a different experience of it I found it to be a lot quieter. Um, you get things like unmade roads, that sort of stuff. So uh, depending on exactly where you go, so just be prepared for that. And I was looking through some notes for um, a trip that I was looking to organise at one stage, which was a tiger um, safari trip, which in the end we didn't do, but it was um, with um, a couple of other photographers based in Sydney. We, we did look into setting up a trip. And um, one of the things I looked at was what happens if you're ill or you have a an accident? Where's the nearest hospital? And uh, the hospital was ten kilometres away from where the park was, but I've noted down that it was a thirty minute journey. So the reason it would be that long is simply that a lot of the roads are very unmade. You can't go very fast. Um, so India does have some absolutely first rate facilities, but they may not be where you are. So uh, again, another thing that I always recommend people do is to get the appropriate travel insurance for where you're going and um, also make sure you have all the vaccinations you need. Now, uh, I'm not going to go through those here because it changes from time to time. So always check the government website where you live or look at the World Health Organization website and they will give give, uh, a list of compulsory vaccinations you'll need. So yellow fever, I can't remember if that's compulsory in India, uh, but it's, it's generally there on the list. So it's worth having that as some of the hepatitis jabs. But have a look at what's compulsory and then also what's recommended. And on the recommended uh, inoculations, I generally have them uh, just to be on the safe side because I don't, I've been lucky on my trips. I've not had um, a serious injury or have been seriously unwell. Uh, the first time I went to India, I did get a bit of deli belly, but there are rules about that. Um, 
but just make sure that you you do take some precautions so that you've got the um, the kind of insurance you need. And if you're in doubt and you're going through a local uh, tour organiser, um, and ideally you're going through one of the big international ones because they will be able to give you sound advice. Uh, I think everyone that I've gone through, where I've gone through an operator like that, they will point you towards specific insurance companies with specific policies that will cover you where you're going. So you don't rely on general travel insurance. Don't rely on the travel insurance on your credit card or whatever else you've got access to because those insurances generally assume that you're going to be going somewhere like um, you know, London or Paris or somewhere that has all the necessary facilities uh, very close to hand. And uh, once you start getting off the beaten track, as it were, then you need to um, be prepared for that. Okay, so um, I spoke about Delhi Belly. So <laughs> that's one of the things about India. It's got, or, I don't know if it still has a reputation. I've sort of been out of the loop for a bit, but um, it always had that represent, uh, or um, there was always that belief, or, excuse me, the belief um, that at some stage you're going to get sick. Well, the chances are you will, unless you start, using a bit of common sense and thinking about what you're doing. So the worst thing, I mean, deli belly is basically um, you've just got a stomach infection and the stomach's trying to flush the in- infection out. So you, you know, and obviously you, you get the uh, the normal way of handling that. Where does the infection come from? Well, most of the time it will be through water. So although I don't like to use bottled water, uh, just from a simple conservation standpoint if you do have a water bottle take that with you and make sure uh, you are able to fill it from your hotel room and just use water that is potable so it's drinkable water don't use uh, the water you get in the street Uh, there are taps there there are even water troughs that locals might use all sorts of things because you're likely to find that you get a bit more regular than you were planning and they are used to drinking that water. That's the big difference. The chances are you're not. So be very, very conservative about that. Now, given that these bugs get to you through the water supply, you've also got to think through about where else you're going to get the water from. So don't eat salads because they'll be washed in water, obviously. But if it's not potable water, it's, if it's not a water source you can trust, then don't use it. And and the reason I say this, uh, the first trip to India I did was back in, um, I think it was 91. And I was just on my own, but I had a guy taking me around. But at the different place that I was going to, I'd bump into this couple, a woman and her daughter. And we'd chat a little bit and then we'd had our separate ways. And one of the, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the mother or the daughter now, but one of them got sick and ended up in hospital. So, you, you know, Having uh, the brown rain, let's say, can sound a little bit funny if inconvenient, but it, it, this can get a lot more serious. So do please, if you are thinking of going, do do respect the rules. So don't eat things like salads or anything that's likely to have been rinsed in uh, ordinary tap water because you don't know where that, if that water is safe to drink. Uh, the same with um, ice drinks. Don't use ice drinks because you don't know where the ice, the water in the ice cubes has come from. So that that's another basic one. In terms of fruit, uh, you're likely to see uh, there's a lot of um, fresh fruit for sale um, on the streets as you go through. Uh, make sure you only buy fruit that has to be peeled. So that's the recommendation there. 
So um, uh, just th- there's some of the basics. And also, again, before you go, just Google uh, recommendations or just safety um, tips for buying uh, food or eating in India, drinking in India, because they will just give you the latest update. And again, with water bottles, if you do take uh, water bottles, check the seal on them, or if you buy them while you're out, make sure the seal isn't broken, because if it is, the chances are it's just been refilled with local water and they've screwed the cap back on. And that can, again, be be dangerous. So um, the bottom line on all of this is that you do need to use a little bit of sense, um, just be a bit bit aware um, of where you're getting your um, where you're getting your water from, or where uh, water that isn't safe for drinking might have been used on something that you're you're going to consume. Now, um, the other thing is food, and I have to say, when I was in Kana, we stayed at um, a little hotel there, and it was mostly vegetarian food, but with a little bit of meat in uh, some of the curries. And I put on weight, so I mean it's really good food as well. And I'm not particularly vegetarian. Um, I, I have no problem with eating very vegetarian food, but I'll also eat meat. Uh, but it was really good food, well prepared, very healthy, and um, as I say, I put weight on. So if you're again, it depends on who's organising your trip for you, and you're going to have to rely on them to to tell you what's safe and what isn't. I would avoid anything that's very spicy unless you're used to very spicy food because uh, what you might be used to in, uh, I mean, I grew up in the UK, so I'm used to vindaloo curries and things like that. But what you will experience in certain in parts of India, for sure, and certainly you go further south, the food tends to get hotter in terms of the spices they put in. But um, what you eat there, you know, don't get smart about it all. Um it might be a lot hotter than you're used to, and it may well again have um, detrimental uh, a detrimental impact on you and your enjoyment of the trip. And obviously, the thing is to enjoy the trip and to experience the, the culture, the the difference of walking down a main street in these towns. It will be chaotic. Most of it is pretty chaotic there and full on. Uh, but that's all part of the the joys of travel. It's um, it's experiencing somewhere different. So those really are the just the basic tips, and this is by no means a comprehensive health guide to traveling in India. Uh, there, it, all I can do is give you some pointers on what to the sort of things to think about, and strongly recommend that you you go onto the appropriate site. So I've m- mentioned the uh, WHO, your uh, your government site, wherever you live, and look at what their recommendations are, and just do a bit of general googling. So things like Lonely Planet, any any company that specialises in travel to that sort of area, just see what tips they have for you because things do change from time to time. So it's good to obviously have the latest information. Okay, so that's um, a little bit about uh, India. Um, what else? I, I mean, the, the, the reason I went, the first time I went, it was purely a tourist thing and I went to the Taj Mahal. Um, I went to Agra, the Red Fort in Agra, um, I went to, I think it's fast for secret, but I know I always pronounce this wrong and then I get criticised. So that's fine. <laughs> I know I've got it wrong. But that's an amazing place. It's not far from um, Delhi. Uh, it's it's in, well, it's one of the golden triangles, but the, the golden triangles seem to pop up everywhere. But it is an abandoned um, 
town city that it was abandoned, I believe, in the 15th century. And it's just very interesting because uh, I believe the reason for them abandoning the place was that their their water supply changed. So um, what they were, were relying on for water uh, for the for the town um it was not available. I don't know if it was, I can't remember now if it's through an earthquake or what it was, but anyway, that water source disappeared. So they had no choice but to move somewhere else. But you've kind of got this snapshot in time of, um, uh, like I say, 15th or 16th century um, um, uh, town that's just been left. So very interesting. But there are, there are many, many places. I'm, I'm not even going to start to um, uh, list them. So it comes back to whatever floats your boat, do a bit of research. But I I definitely recommend that if you're going to India, um, allow 10 days for wildlife photography, but then spend whatever other time you can, whether it's time or what you can afford to have a look elsewhere. So I guess just really briefly to talk about Kana. And as I said, there is another podcast where I do talk about Kana specifically. So this is not going to go into the same depth as that one did. So to get to Kana, we flew into Nagpur and um, it was around about, I think it was a three-hour drive from um, Nagpur to the reserve. Now, uh, where we were in India, there were no service stations or anything like that. So just as a tip, uh, it's worth asking the question, if you are having to go to a regional airport or even a major airport, uh, but your destination is uh, a bit of a hike away, uh, just find out if there are any any places to stop on the way for uh, food, for a drink, for, you know, get comfortable, all that kind of stuff. And um, it may well be that there isn't. So don't be surprised. Just, again, be prepared. It's all down to research and asking the right questions. Um, with Kana, we would uh, we were very close to what they called the Mucky Gate, so M-U-K-K-I. Uh, we were, I think it was about 700 metres. It was very close, but we would get out early. Uh, we'd be on the move at about 5.30 um, to get in. I think it was either 6 or 7. I can't even remember now. I do remember we had to wait, though, to get in, and we'd be out really early. But that was so that we could be uh, at the front of the queue to get into the, the park because the park is only open for certain hours during the day. I believe it was 7 till 11 and then 2 till 5, if I remember correctly. So quite short packets of time, really, when you think about it. And um, certainly... Compared to where I've been in Africa on on the pure safari trips rather than volunteering, uh, you're likely to be out for longer than that. Uh, but again, this is why I recommend that you spend a longer time in the one location. And the other reason for that is that in Kana, it's got several zones. Um, I might even have my map. Oh, yes. So there are one, two, three. There are four different zones in the park and what they would do for every time you entered the park you were allocated a different zone you had to go to and that was a way of managing uh, the numbers in the park and obviously these parks are limited so this is why when you book your trip uh, whoever's organizing it for you locally needs to buy the passes pretty early on often six months maybe even longer before your trip because the um the way a lot of national parks work is that they have a certain allocation of passes for the year, for the season, and they become available at a certain time. So people snap them up and then sell them. But uh, this is why you often have to book well ahead of time, um, just to be sure of getting a pass to get into the park. And again, another thing with national parks that um, I know is true in a number of countries, they you'll be asked when you um, are 
doing all the final booking or, or getting the, the trip set up. So this might be months before you go. But they will ask for, or your organiser will ask for a copy of the ID that, that you're using uh, because they will use that to give you entrance to the park. So normally that would be your passport, but you need to make sure it is the same document um, that you'll be using at the park. So if you are booking your trip six months before you're going and you need to renew your passport, don't do it in that six-month period. Do it early so that your tour organiser has your current passport picture or the, the basically a picture of the um, uh, the, the page with all the details on, and that's from the same document that you'll be using to get entrance to the, entry to the park. So what they'll normally do is you drive up, um, your guide or your driver will just take your passport. They'll go into the uh, the office because there'll be an office at the entrance to the park, and that's where they show the IDs. They get checked against what they've got on their bookings, and um, you need to make sure you have the same document to get in. So that's an important thing to remember. Again, whoever's organising your trip should tell you about all this. But it's if they don't, well, it, that's something you need to know about. So um, we would always get there early so we could be pretty much first into the park, mostly so that particularly if we had to go um, to the area, um, which was actually the um, Sahi. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying these all wrong, but there was a place called the Sahi Zone that was furthest away from the gate we were at. It meant that we could just get sort of try a trucking and... Um, get through the park and get into that zone as early as possible so that we could begin tracking. And again, when it comes to tracking animals, there's a couple of things you uh, are looking out for or your guide will be doing. And again, the reason for staying in an area for several days is that the guides talk and they're likely to have been in different zones. So your guy, if you've got the same person all the way through, he might have been in one zone with you one day, but uh, his colleagues will have been in the zone that you're going to the following day. So he'll be able to tell the, these drivers share information. So he'll have an idea of what was go- what was going on in that zone the previous day or even in the morning if you're going on the afternoon trip and you're in a different zone. So there is a bit of local intelligence. Tigers will move around the park in the case of Kana. Some parks are open. So Kana's open at the side. I mean, there's no... Uh, retaining fence or anything like that it's a national park and most national parks tend to be open so um that does lead to some interesting encounters which i'll come back to uh, but what you do is you basically go uh, it means that you can get up to the zone that you're that you've been allocated but the driver may already be aware that there were tigers in a certain part of that area so they'll probably head over there over there first and start looking. So the next things you're looking for are really two things. One is um, what we call spore. And spore is just, it's kind of the story in the ground as you look around of, of what's been happening. And that will include things like footprints. It will include dung. It will include broken branches, bushes, whatever. So as animals move about, they will leave traces of some sort. Some will leave more traces than other. Others, so you you can imagine an elephant. Elephants can leave a hell of a mess behind them, <laughs> but um, the predators generally are a lot more stealthy, so they'll leave um, fewer uh, um, or less evidence behind. But you're likely to see footprints, and um, certainly Kana has area the way the tracks where you're driving are generally unmade, so they're sort of sandy or dusty. So you'll see footprints uh, quite clearly. So I always like to look out the look out of the side of whatever vehicle I'm in 
just to see if I can spot anything. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And uh, obviously the guide will know what they're looking for. So they'll know what a tiger paw print looks like. So that's one way of finding that there has been an animal about. And different factors will tell you how old tracks are, for example, because if you've got a a tiger um, paw print on the ground and then there's uh, paw prints of something else over the top of it, that will tell you that those prints are definitely older. Obviously, the tiger print is older than the print of the animal going um, that's walked over the top of it, particularly if it's a prey animal. It probably means that tiger's moved off and um, the prey animal is now um, just sort of wandering through that area. Um, another thing might be wind. So if it is sandy conditions, if if, it, if that area is exposed to wind, um, even a gentle breeze, it will tend to move um, grains of sand, for example, and that will mean that the um, definition of the track is less defined as time goes on because this, you know, it's gradually getting blown flat. So that's also an indicator of how old things are. Dung is another one. You, you know, how warm is it? How wet is it? Um, what sort of wildlife is there? Dung beetles usually, but if it's obviously very dried out, then it's quite old. But if it's very fresh and wet all the rest of it it's it's brand new so keep your eyes out now the other thing that you're looking for in that circumstance or I should say you're actually listening for are alarm calls because you'll find there's a lot of relationships in nature so I'm not just talking about India but a lot of relationships in nature where animals so ground animals might be looking for predators on the ground but Animals based up in the trees generally have a better view. So there'll be some sort of relationship. They'll tend to stay together and feed in the same area. So if one of them detects a predator, which might be, which presumably is a threat to both species, uh, they'll sound an alarm call that might be answered by the other species if it's a, if there's a pair of them. And, um, they'll obviously do what they need to do to get away. But that's the thing you're looking, you're listening for. You're listening for these alarm calls and you'll begin to, find so there's a big antelope a barasinga and it's alarm call it sounds almost like a bark so it's very distinctive and all of these animals will have a very distinctive um, alarm call because obviously it needs to be instantly clear that this isn't a genuine alarm call they, they need to you need to pay attention you need you've got a, a predator very close so you there is real danger so clearly it will be a very distinct call and again your guide will be able to just help you a little bit with um with all of that so i could talk a lot about india i'm not going to go on much longer and um this has again been focused primarily on visiting india with a view to seeing wildlife and and generally people want to go and see tigers because the bengal tiger is the um i guess the number one attraction i would assume uh, from a wildlife perspective, uh, obviously they have Asian elephants, the uh, the Indian elephant, um, so slightly different to the African elephant. There's all sorts of deer. Um, most of them are distinct species to what you would find, say, in Africa, but they will slot into the same um, kind of category. So you've got your small deer, your larger deer um, in Africa. You've got the same in India, but they're different animals. So. Um, that's pretty much it on the, the wildlife front. Uh, I think I've covered everything I wanted to really. I just really wanted to dive in a little bit about tigers and talk a little bit about it. And I guess make recommendations so that you've got the best chance of seeing one or more tigers. So 
um, as I've said, I do recommend you stay in the one place for several days if you can, because you get the benefit of that shared experience of the guides and you might end up in zones on certain trips where there are no tigers. That's quite likely. So the longer you stay, the more zones you're going to cover and the the better your chances are of seeing um, an animal. And while you're there, have a look at what else you can go and see. And India offers a lot um, and it comes down to what what interests you. Uh, It might be culture, history, food, clothing i don't know but uh, if you can if time allows and budget allows do spend a bit of time there and travel internally uh when it comes to certain yeah i would say on the journey in and on the journey out if you've got a combination of domestic and international flights with only a few hours separating them so if you're, if you're flying an internal to one place and then uh, where there is so one of these international hubs Mumbai or Delhi and if you're going to be in Delhi say for a few days then that's not so much of an issue but if you are doing what I did flying from Nagpur up to Mumbai and then on to Sydney and something goes wrong it makes life a lot easier if you're only if it's just one airline involved when you get two airlines it's the usual uh, everyone's blaming everybody else and you're sat in the middle of it Um, do check um, health that's really important really make sure you've got the right health insurance and travel insurance in case things go wrong because you don't want to find out you've got the wrong stuff when you actually need it and um really above all just enjoy it i i i do love india i think it's an amazing place um hate the airports (laughs) love india hate the airports so and all the bureaucracy but uh yeah, the, the information I'm sharing here was correct last time I went, which was a few years ago now. So I'm recording this in January 2024. So it's almost six years since um, I was last there, which um, is quite a surprise. But there you go. But uh, I definitely recommend it if you have the opportunity to go. So I hope this has been useful and I'll speak to you in the next podcast. Bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now.